HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Copper and Kings, pure copper pot distilled American brandy aged in Kentucky bourbon barrels. For more information, visit copperandkings.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Damon Bolte. My name is Souther Teague. Today in the studio, we've got uh, a great uh, guest for this particular Wednesday, which is the beginning of Tales of the Cocktail 2016. Um, Philip Duff, the director of education for TOTC, as well as the owner of Door 74. Welcome to the studio, Philip. Thanks, Souther. Damon, lovely to be here. Great to have you, man. Um, so, like, this is kind of a fun show because we're actually, right now, technically at Tales of the Cocktail, as this is airing. But it, it, this it, is the future. We're in the, we're li- we're recording to the future, man. Um, so let's like first of all, you're director of education for uh, Tales of the Cocktail. Can you tell us a bit about what you're going to be uh, educating us on? So Tales of the Cocktail, sleepaway camp for bartenders. It's Hogwarts, if you like, and I'm Albus Dumbledore. So 84 seminars over four days. That doesn't include all our brand new free branded education seminars that's a portion of the tasting rooms the tasting rooms themselves all the other events and parties and things going on but my the meat of my work is the seminars we can't expand tales anymore unless somebody builds a massive hotel somewhere in the french quarter it's at maximum capacity with those 84 so my job is to make sure that every single person walks out of every single seminar saying, wow, that $65 ticket was way too cheap for what I learned. I'm going to book my flights for 2017 tomorrow. So there's a ton of great stuff going on this year. and give you the highlights of a few seminars I'm looking forward to. Yeah, please, please do. Uh, so one of them is actually a bar seminar, and we're among friends here. Tails gets to push the boundaries. To give you an idea, we have seminars this year, not just on ice, but on water, carbon, and air. Three separate seminars, by the way. And that's the best thing about Tails. We can go deep. 
Yeah, absolutely. They, well, you know, speaking of like just even just ice and, and uh, there, there, there was the uh, Dunley and I believe it was Dave Arnold part of the uh, the the two um, sessions on uh, the the shaking seminar and then the the stirring seminar, which were two different years, mm-hmm. uh, correct? Yes. And uh, they had like uh, uh, thermometer sensors and uh, deletion. Like that's like. For for lack of a better term, like getting to nerd out that way is like one of the coolest parts of Tales of the Cocktail. I mean, I always like to skip class and go straight to the party, but I do still end up every year learning a lot. I I don't I, I don't get to learn enough because, like you said, it has grown to the point where it's completely like sold out. It's like a huge it's it's the biggest bar seminar in probably the world now, right? Yeah, and plus it goes on the road too, right? There's Tales Canada, Tales Mexico. Are you in charge of education for all those as well? I am. I am. Heavy hangs the head that wears the crown. And on Wednesday, we will be announcing where the next Tales on tour will go. So we did two-year rotations in Vancouver, Buenos Aires, and Mexico City, and every single one was fantastic and spectacular. I'm really psyched about the next one. I wish I could tell you. Uh, We're speaking in the future. Uh, So by the time you listen to this, it will have been announced, and it will be very cool to go where we're going with Tales. But yeah, I also uh, run the seminar show for those ones too. So with these, uh, the new... um like you said, the free classes, the brand-sponsored classes and whatnot, are they mostly still um, concentrated uh, in, in, like, the Monteleone, the Hotel Monteleone, or, or, or are they, as you put it, like, it's expanded so much and it's grown so much, uh, do they kind of just, like, bleed out into the rest of the quarter, or, or are they still, like, mostly... If, you know, I always think of the Monteleone as, like, the home base, you know? You get there... You go to the carousel bar, have yourself a Sazerac, and you just you can get swept into any direction in any room for a, a myriad of classes. So, are they still like mostly concentrated uh, in the Montelli- the Hotel Monteleone? Yeah, so all the seminar action goes down in the Monteleone or the Royal Senesta. That's it. And the branded educations are really cool. If you submit a proposal for a seminar, first it's vetted by a seminar committee I've selected of about 50 people all around the world, multiple award winners, brand owners, bartenders, brand ambassadors, people like me who don't fit into any easy categories. If they like it, I'll look at it. And if it gets in, it gets put on regardless of sponsorship. And it must be balanced. That's the key thing I want to say here. You can be from Megabooks Corporation, right? And be willing to like drop a ton of money with us, sponsor a seminar, a big party, you know, slip me and Anne Tunnerman like envelopes full of cash. It doesn't matter. The seminar has to be balanced. If you pack it, if you pack the panel with like five people who all work for the brand, it's not happening. Yeah. I want at least half the panel to have no association with the brand whatsoever. And I want at least one person on it who is a complete dick who will argue <laughs> against everything because otherwise it's not worth 65 bucks. So that's how seminars go. Can I uh, suggest one for next year? Absolutely. Um, right now on the air. What is... <laughs> can we do a seminar <laughs> on what is the acceptable level of tackiness for a uh, tiki shirt? And I want Souther to be <laughs> involved with this, of course, because I think it's something that's on all of our minds right now, specifically <laughs> at this moment. Know. But, yeah, the, the world wants to know. 
<laughs> yeah, well, Tiki's blowing up. Also, this is what I call my laundry day shirt. Thank you very much. It's beautiful, man. It's beautiful. But, like, well, they're, they're supposed to be Tiki Tacky, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That, that shirt, on the tacky scale, it would be like a six at best. I would pay. 60, I would definitely pay sixty-five bucks to go to a seminar based on uh, the the tackiness of of Hawaiian shirts. My my collection specifically. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do a, we'll do a Southern Teague fashion show at Tails, and uh, we can get like plantation to like donate pineapple rum or something like that. <laughs> everybody everybody gets a shirt. Well, between <laughs> Jeff Barry and people like Wayne Curtis and Stephen Remsburg, all New Orleans residents, we could have a tiki shirt off. Right? Oh, that would be quite perfect. epic. So there we go. All right. We, I think we have a seminar, guys. Yeah. <laughs> we can definitely put together a panel. Um, so oftentimes here at uh, uh, the Speakeasy, we have something to taste while we're in the studio. And it looks like you've got a couple bottles for us. And you said you haven't even tried them yet yourselves. Can you tell us a little bit about this thing and maybe pour us a little? I can totally pour it. I can't tell you a whole lot about it. So I myself, uh, I try to only teach one seminar a year. I'm teaching a couple more than that this year. I'm teaching a seminar on, called Iron Amaro about possibly the most obscure Amaro category. It's not just an Amaro. It's a Kina Amaro. Obviously, one that contains uh, quinine. And it's not just a Kina Amaro category. It's the Ferroquina category, which contains um, iron citrate to, to make you strong. And it turns out this Italian Amaro was first imported and then produced in Argentina. And that one of the biggest drinks in Argentina to this day is called a locomotive, a ferrocarril, with this Amaro, uh, I think Angostura... Maraschino, um, and this ingredient, which Southern is pouring for us now, called Pinaral, which is produced in Argentina. It's got a really banging craft spirits label with a devil's head on it. There's definitely some kind of diabolical associations to it. And my friend Fedekucho from Vern Bar in Buenos Aires tells me it's got like a bit of a licorice flavor to it. So I think uh, we should hand the mic over to Southern, our man, our man from the bitter side, to tell us what he thinks. Well, so who did you get this from? This was dropped off by a friend of Fede who actually works for this company who happened to be in New York. Amazing. How I, cool is this, right? I, it's amazing. I, I love that guy. And he dropped these bottles off at my bar, Mori Margo, um, two nights ago, and I brought them into the studio today without opening them. A great temptation for me to um, withstand. Um, yeah, right away I smell a little bit of anise, fennel notes, but it really smells of cola, right? You got a lot of cola. Cola, baby? Yeah. That um, makes sense because, like, in Argentina, like, the, they're – their national drink is Fernet con Coca. Yeah. Nationally made Fernet. Right. Well, that's the, that, that was the first thing that led me to this connection. It's like you said that uh, it's originally in, uh, an, an Italian uh, bitter, but then it was started, they started producing it in Argentina. To be and, fair, not this stuff. Ferroquina. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. 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 But, this, I suspect, is obviously inspired. Sure. Um, and, and what the history of it is, I don't know. But it seems relatively classical, no? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Again, it's got those cola nut flavors. I'm getting a little, like, citrus on the backside that's orange and maybe lemon. It's very pleasant, I must say. How strong is it? Uh, yeah, seems pretty low. 29%, 20. so uh, almost 60 proof, 58 proof. All right. So, what, so you're working with a company. What's the Ferrochina from? That's the Italian the version. Italian one, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, talk about uh, more of the iron citrate aspect because you brought me a bottle of that almost a year ago 
and I devoured it, and I keep the empty bottle on my back bar just so I can talk to people about how one day Philip Duff is going to get this here to America, and it's going to be the greatest day. Um, because when I tasted that stuff for the first time, I don't want to sound gross, but it, it, there's, there's this irony quality to it that, that made me feel like, oh, my gosh, I think I, I just bit a car key and got punched in the nose. Like it's got this really forward minerality to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so talk about that. It's so interesting. I've been researching this. My co-presenter is Fulvio Piccinino, the author of Futurist Mixology and perhaps Italy's greatest expert on vermouths and amaros and their history. And the history is bonkers, man. Like, by the 1800s, it was a free-for-all. There was no regulation on advertising in Italy until 1927. Obviously, no FDA or anything. So you could claim anything about anything. There was one product called Vin Marzial, which was cocaine and strychnine and wine, right? It sounds like Saturday night, man. Right, certainly in Grand Army. Believe it or not, like... (laughs) No, we take it a little bit easier than that. For a long time, strychnine, nux vomica, right, was thought to be health-giving. Now, to be clear, strychnine has no health benefits whatsoever. It's only bad. But if you take a little bit... Rat poison. poison. Strychnine is rat poison. If you take a little bit of strychnine, it does actually make you a bit alert and twitchy just before your body shuts down. So they mix this with wine and uh, and cocaine because obviously everything goes better with a bit of cocaine. So in that world... It's like a Rolling Stones song, man. Yeah. From like 72. You know. So in that world, Ferrochina grew up. We don't make doctors like we used to. Um... Mr. Baliva, who was a doctor in Rome, began making this as a health tonic. Italy was, and to be honest, is still in some parts grindingly poor. People were growing up, kids were growing up, malnourished, no protein. You took this stuff, loads of iron, mild alcoholic base, uh, a bit of sugar too, didn't hurt. How far back are we talking? Like that, That mild alcoholic base was probably better for you than water. Definitely. 1894. It all dates to 1894. And he quickly kind of outsourced production to the Benedetti family and later to the Polini family, who also make the Limoncello, who now make the Boliva. But this stuff has really legitimately gone from being a medical tonic to being a recreational thing. And the iron citrate is now this delicious but non-specific kind of a citrusy flavor is not too strong. An entire generation of Italians grew up getting... Uh, an ounce of this a day as adults or a, a spoon of it a day if you were a kid very often beaten into egg yolks like you must to this day just to give and context they, they cooked or they would just knock back the they, raw they egg yolk up and then boom yeah. yeah to this day in southern Italy at least um, one of the biggest sellers for liquor and liqueur producers is syrups because people don't even buy or have money for Coca-Cola or Sprite they buy a syrup and then they mix it with water instead of paying for a Coca-Cola. Sure. So in that context, this grew up. And since 2015, there's only one brand left. Diageo actually had the rights to produce the other one, Bisleri, which also dates to 1894. Very nice Ferrochina. But for probably very logical reasons, they stopped. So there's just one brand left, which is launching in the US, the one that you got a bottle of last year. And to kind of commemorate that, myself and Fulvio, we're doing a seminar, not just about our one, about all the Ferrochinas. We're going to have the largest collection of vintage Ferrochina ever for people to taste. How how many will that be? Uh, Three for everybody, two more if you're adventurous. 
We have. So you're saying yeah. that you're saying so if you have the largest collection, that means other are going to be there. Right? Yeah. yeah. If you have the largest <laughs> collection and it's five, then what you're saying is there are five on Earth. There, uh, there's five, of which four are completely extinct. So we're really talking about this one, and and I don't want to you know bang the drum for this particular brand, but so when is this launch? It's I've been waiting over a year. Uh, approval came through, so they're just literally just moving stuff across in the water. By September, it'll be in the bars in New York, hopefully. Um, I'll give a little bit away, not to be promotional like that. Everybody who attends the seminar, they're going to get the first and only bit of POS, which is a really cool spoon you wear around your neck, which is one ounce measure, so everyone can take like a spoon of this for their health. That's how it's going to be. It's going to be really cool. That sounds charming. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, and, and what, well, I mean, we can say it today because today is a week from today. What, uh, what day and time is that seminar? And is it sold out? Uh, it is next Friday, right, at New Orleans, uh, tells the Cocktail. It is sold out, but because it's the future, I can tell you this. There are always people who don't show up because they're still in Alibi Bar or getting a bagel or whatever. So please, even if a seminar, any seminar is sold out, come there, come 10 minutes early, get in the standby line, hold your credit card up. You'll almost certainly be able to buy a ticket to get in. Yeah, I would say, I would say about 70% of the seminars that I've gone to in the past two years anyway have been standby, and I've gotten into every one. Um, but they've all been sold out prior to that, which is amazing. That means that you're selling out everything. Now we just got to teach the kids to not hang out too long at, at Aaron Rose. <laughs> That's what it is. It's, it's, I mean, it's always that goddamn uh, frozen Irish coffee, coffee at, yeah. at Aaron Rose. Yeah, but actually, a tip for everybody. Um, if you're listening to this in the future next Wednesday, if you get in touch with me and you can work out how to get in touch with me, there's actually a very cool private free tour of the New Orleans Pharmacy Museum at 3 p.m. on Thursday. If you'd like to come contact me or even contact Damon or Souther and they'll contact me. You can do it together with Fulvio uh, Piccinino, my colleague, and maybe drink a little bit of this stuff, but also see the Pharmacy Museum, which is amazing, it's, right? It's spectacular. I, I've been there numerous times. I, you know, I used to live in New Orleans, and that place is a great place to just take people and, and, and walk back through a, a weird part of history. Oh, yeah. Upstairs, upstairs is terrifying. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's where things get weird and creepy and you're, you're, yeah, cur- like you're the curious. Gyneco- the gynecology chair is no fun. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, it makes you curious how, how people, frankly, survived that which was supposed to help them survive. Yeah. Uh. So uh, can, can we circle back around to um, – so uh, to me, I, I kind of find it fascinating that, um, for instance, like a product like Pinaral and, and like Fernet Branca like, – became very popular in like Argentina and I, I I've often wondered with like with South America being so like steeped in in like things like uh, cachaca and 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 pisco and and rum and, and everything what what brought this like it, it I think to it me seems, like seems like seems like a distant left turn yeah right yeah, to to, in, to opposite ends of the polar spectrum. Yeah, are going on in the same sweet place. to bitter. Like, yeah. So, can we talk about that? Like that. That to me, like to me, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I love rum and I love bitters. So, like, they have you ever had Fernet Branca? I once, once for a very long time. Once for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, 
I mean, insight on that sort of thing? It's it's actually a pretty fascinating thing to ask, and maybe you do or don't have insight, but like it, it, I'd never really thought about it the way you just posed it. But yeah, they have these like kind of sweeter, unaged sort of brandies. Kind of counterintuitive, like to they, to they what drink, they drink with a lot of sugar and a lot of citrus, and then they turn the coin and drink, you know, bitters typically either on its own or with Coca Cola, which I guess is sweet, but. Actually, like a, a buddy of mine, my buddy Ben put this to me in, in a way. Well, speaking of putting cocaine in, in, in liquid, um, you know, the way he put it was that originally Coca Cola, if you think about it, really, it's like a carbon. It's like a, nowadays, it's like a a non alcoholic carbonated Amaro. Yeah, I, I kind of say that to a lot of people as well. There are a lot of like Coca Cola, Dr Pepper, RC. If those if those had been alcoholic. A little less sweet, not a lot, frankly, and non-carbonated. They'd be the best-selling uh, Amari in the world. Yeah, I mean, like even like Montenegro, it's it's pretty fucking sweet, man. Absolutely, I think it's it's. I, I'm sure I've said it on the show a few times. And I definitely say it kind of every day at work. It's it's. You have to remember that Amaro, though the word means bitter, it, literally translated, when it's translated to mean the liquid that we're talking about, Amaro, uh, it means bittersweet liqueur. You have to really emphasize that sweet part. They're all sweetened. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the the correct answer to what you brought up, Damon, is we have to zoom out and examine the vagaries of history, right? The best-selling beer in Ireland is Heineken. The best-selling spirit in France, the home of Armagnac and Calvados and Cognac, this, this, this blows me away and pisses me off. Yeah, by an <laughs> enormous amount. Um, one of two of the major export markets for Dutch Geneva, like far beyond the U.S. or anything like that, are Guadeloupe in the Caribbean and West Africa. Right. So stuff takes a left turn for so many reasons. Yeah, I was in I was in Cognac a few years back, and I was kind of blown away to know that. It, it was a, a shocking number. It was something like ninety-eight percent of all cognac produced in well in the region of cognac is all exported. It's higher. It's higher. Point five percent, half a percent of the cognac consumed in the world is consumed in the home of cognac, in the home of cognac, it's which a very is small France. place, though. In fairness, it is. It is. True. Sure. But still, you know, if if I if we kind of crunch those numbers, I'm sure that more than half a percent of all bourbon is is drank in the state of Kentucky. Uh, so we can. So that's how you range that size thing. But isn't it, it, it kind of like reminds me of like exactly like when you get off your shift, like at the end of your shift, like do do you like working at a, a cocktail bar? Do you do you order a cocktail or do you get a Miller High Life and a, a shot of Jameson? You know, like it, it's more often than not the latter. I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So like it kind of it, it that's when it starts making sense, I guess. It's like. Well, I, I don't know. I'm from Oklahoma, and I eat steak all the time, so that doesn't. That, I can't really like change into a culinary uh, side of things, but like, but yeah, I, I guess that makes sense. But like, that's. But yeah, all right. Well, you you answered you answered that question in a perfect way. I mean, we were talking earlier. I, I bet about a conversation. Of, I bet a lot of it has to do with stuff that's beyond our depth, which is economics. It, uh, you know, everything comes back to money. Well, I, I was going to say that, like specifically with South America, what has happened with South America and continues to happen to this day is, and this happens in other parts of the world too, is that a, let's say, mega drinks corporation says, well, we want to come here and sell it here. And it costs a ton of money to ship stuff across the world, right? And until shipping containers, ironically, were in a shipping container, yeah, were invented by the U.S. Navy, believe it or not, in, I believe, the 1960s, shipping was even more expensive, Right. So instead, local drinks company X would say, well, look, we'll just make it here. Yeah. Right. 
You send over your guy. We'll use sugar cane instead of grain or grape, whatever. I mean, you, it, it was hilarious. You could you could have like whiskeys based on grapes in South America. You still see old bottles, and that distributor then becomes really significant and big. And as you and I were talking about earlier, Damon. When you've got a supplier-customer relationship, it's a conversation. The supplier pushes and the customer pushes back and you have a conversation. So why is Fernet & Coke so massive in Argentina? It's probably a bit of both. And once it begins to build, like vodka soda in the US, it's an unstoppable train or at least one that's very difficult to derail. But the origins are always these wild bizarre things my favorite story about that is that the number one market per capita and in an absolute sense for benedictine liqueur is working men's clubs in the north of england particularly in lancashire because a lancashire military regiment was stationed near Fécamp in france during world war one and bizarrely or not bizarrely, as English people, they developed a taste for the local distilled alcohol, which was Benedictine. So now you have these working class guys in the north of England, which is extremely working class indeed. It's like they're Pennsylvania. And they are just doing heroic quantities of Benedictine. They have it in shots. They have it with hot water as a toddy. So that, that's one of the most weird vagaries of, of history. I think the weird phenomenon of, of drinking uh, Grand Marnier, or Grandma, as they call it, in the Carolinas. Like, they're one of the biggest consumers of Grand Marnier, and they drink it as neats and shots, mostly. Yeah. And I, I can't even imagine that. Well, <laughs> yeah. Speaking of, like, this, the, the number one selling whiskey in Texas is Crown Royal, which is a Canadian whiskey. <laughs> you would never think that, like, that, that Texas, as a state... And that could be their own, uh, you know, the Republic of Texas. You would never think that they... they That's would, right. The national... Like have the, their, the nation of Texas. Yeah. yeah. Their, their drink is uh, Canadian. I don't know if they... If most of them realize that it's Canadian. Was that, was that just an F you when they, when, they, when, they, when they came back to the, to the States? No idea. It's just like, I was talking with Adam Harris from uh, Maker's Mark and, and Beam, and uh, he, I was hanging out with him in Austin uh, a few years back, and he told me... That was, you know, <laughs> that was the market research. How uh, do they take it? How do they take it? Crown and seven? I just, yeah, no. I, can't even, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Crown and coat. I can't even imagine. That's it, like, it's also, a, this isn't stupid, right? But there is somebody free today who perhaps shouldn't be because of a rhyme, because of alliteration. If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Yeah. Crown and Coke has a delicious alliteration to it. And as banal as that may seem, sometimes that's what it takes. Seven and seven, baby. Yeah. Well, <laughs> t- truth. I, I always thought, though, Crown and Coke should have been, should have been uh, Royal Crown and Crown Royal. Crown, uh, Royal, <laughs> Royal Crown Cola. Yeah. <laughs> but it never stuck. Um, let's, yeah. d- let's shift gears a little bit and talk... Um, Let's shift gears a little bit here and talk about, um, you mentioned in your last little uh, bit there, um, Geneva. I did. And you also own a bar in Amsterdam called Door 74, and they they drink plenty of Geneva over there, and you're making one. You want to talk about that, or? I am. I am. Uh, So I've been... I'm I'm going to talk about it. It's happening. Uh, I'm... For many people, the person who knows about Geneva, because I lived in Holland for 17 years. I speak fluent Dutch. I did the research and all that. And 
two things kind of bugged me about Geneva. I helped to create the Balls Geneva, which I think is a spectacular product, but they insisted on pricing it too high. So everyone loved it and you couldn't use it in your cocktails. It's still a fantastic product. And second, there is a type of Geneva that nobody knows about. All the Geneva in the world is a blend, pretty much, that you've ever had, including Balls. But there are single malt Genevas, 100% malt wine, as we call it. There's only four in the world. They've really never been exported. I wanted to create one of them. And I wanted to create a Geneva, which is also a blend, but at a price, which means you could just put it in any cocktail you like and not have to dig out your pocket calculator or put on you know, a cheaper cocktail to balance it out. And, and that's what I'm doing. Fantastic. Uh, well, um, what, what stage in the process are you? Like, are you soon to be released? Are you where yet? Uh, in the shops for January, which probably means March. Uh, so Old, Old Duff Geneva, single malt and a blend, two separate ones. I'm actually speaking on Geneva history at Tales of the Cocktail as well at the Juniper Ascending Palace uh, seminar from Kelly Rivers in Whitechapel. And it is, I'm also, the nice thing about starting Geneva, and I'm not really joking here, is that you know it's not going to sell from the start. So you can actually have a lot of fun and do innovative things with marketing it. It'll sell enough to cover the bills, but I just really want people to see it as like a test model for how you can do a craft spirit, do it right. It's going to be made in Holland by an extremely legit distillery, and it will be sold to people who want to have it. We're not going to have sales reps or even ambassadors or, you know, or even T-shirts. That's how modest the, 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 uh, the, the, the budget is. <laughs> At best, I you know I've never been a fan of uh, swag. As you can see, I don't I wear <laughs> uh, apparently ugly shirts. Um, <laughs> um, well, that's great. So here's the here's the big question that that I, I've asked you before. Obviously, we're friends. I know you outside of this this little room, but um, what possessed you to say to yourself, "I'm going to bring another bottle of Geneva over"? Because you know, though I love Geneva, I think I'm a, among the minority. Like so, what made you say to yourself, you know what? I'm going to bring another product onto a line that's not super popular with the mainstream. Uh, very good question. So my gig, apart from being Tales Director of Education, is that I help brands. I'm sort of like their bartender. I create their education programs. I help them learn new things about their own products. I train their staff. I do seminars all around the world. That's my gig. Creating a brand from scratch and launching it in the US, the UK, Australia, and all that will increase my skill set by probably 300%, right? And hopefully it won't cost any money because I'm not chasing profit, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. I would totally sell out for like the highest dollar. There's no doubt about that at all. Anyone, <laughs> anyone who knows me knows that I'm more Frank Underwood than anything else in House of Cards. But, but I'm realistic about this. Uh, it's going to be a tremendous school. It will make a bit of money. Hopefully, we'll get to be disruptive because we're not indebted to investors or anything. It's all coming out of my, my back pocket. And also, I adore it. I've been saying I'm going to do this for years. And at a certain point, you have to live up to it. It's going to increase my knowledge stratospherically. And going back to being a bit of a beginner when you're you know, generally thought to be an expert at this or that, or it's actually really cool. It's really cool to have to say to somebody, it's like, dude, I don't know how labels work. Like, tell me about bottles. Is it like, is the glass green or do you paint it green or whatever? Should we get them from China and all that? It's actually really cool. Yeah, well, so, so it's a business education and a tool that you'll be able to use to deliver more seminars, classes, et cetera, to nerds, yeah. like, nerds like me and Damon. Yeah. I, I would say, you know, that's my favorite part about being in this industry is that like just like 
not only with cocktails, but just the bases of like the spirits and, and the other ingredients that go into them. Cause you can never know everything about it. And that's what drives you to drives me to stay in this business because like it's, it's constantly educational and it's like, like the, the explorative aspects of it are, that's what keeps me into it. And I, I love that you said that about it because like, you know what? I, I, you know, I know how to rebuild a carburetor. But that doesn't mean that I'm gonna know everything else about the motorcycle, you know. Like, but yeah, it, it, I, I really I applaud you for for making a Geneva because, like, yeah, Southern and I we're we're both fans of Geneva, but yeah, there's not there's not there's a hole there. There's a hole in the market, and uh, and, well, I mean, and I'll ask this question: I have two on my back bar. How many do you have? I have, well. Are we talking just Geneva or corn wine? Geneva. I have, two. I have the Boomsma, forgive my terrible pronunciation, Oud, yeah? yeah? And then I have yeah. the Bulls. That's yeah, it. That's yeah. it. Um, I, well, actually, well, if, I guess we could throw in a third, right? I have the, the cheap Gowanus, but that's, an yeah, Ameri- that's American made. Eh, close enough, right? And, and, and now, don't forget, I'm at a bar where I have typically one from every spirit category. I have one bourbon. I have two scotches that blended and a peated. I, you know, like, I'm really low on space, and I'm willing to dedicate, I guess, 2.5, so three bottles to, to this category. But I think I'm unusual. I like it. I like the characteristic that it has on its own. I like the aged. I like the young. I like the way I can use it in cocktails. But, man, I, I, yeah, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to applaud you by saying, like, I don't, you know, you could have went out there and made another whipped cream vodka and made yourself a shit ton of money. I do have a story about that. Actually, <laughs> two, two things to say, one serious, one not so serious. So there's a guy called Richard Koch, K-O-C-H. He's an extremely successful investor from England. He's the, he is the reason you have Plymouth Gin on your back bar. He was the guy sure. who revitalized the brand. And he has a book called The Star Principle. And a, a leading principle of it is no niche is too small if you own it. So Geneva is a I mean, tiny niche. Okay. I, mean, I, guess, I guess I should be able to get behind that concept. Right? <laughs> and craft and Geneva is, is even smaller than that. Like all the Geneva you've ever had, 99% of it, uh, unfortunately, including Paul's, isn't really made in Holland. It's made in Belgium, right? You run a 25-person Amaro bar. That's a niche, but you own that niche. It is the premier Amaro bar in the whole world. So that's the serious bit. The unserious bit is... A friend of mine, Raj uh, Nagra, uh, there was, there's a brand ambassador's lunch every December in New York. It's a private affair. You might not have heard about it. I'm the professor emeritus, the Roger Sterling of the brand ambassadors. So they always invite me to do like five minutes of stand-up there. And I ran into him there. And he was like, man, are we still going to do this? And I'm like, what, dude? It turned out three months before we had a lunch at the Nomad here in New York, and it was a brilliant lunch, so brilliant that it lasted all the way through the afternoon into dinner with the necessary drinks. And we had had a huge conversation there, apparently, about our next business venture, which would be, rather appropriately for where we're taping this, Brooklyn Vodka, right? It would be proper craft vodka, and we would do it and all that. And apparently I'd, like, written a business plan and everything like that. Uh, Back of a napkin, yeah. Yeah, several napkins. But you know what? In the, in the sober light of day, that's not a bad idea either because that's a niche. But if I say to you craft vodka, like proper craft vodka that people also accept as craft and understand as craft, there's almost nobody there right now. 
And that's a niche that somebody is going to... Oh, not me and Raj, because we're busy and I forgot everything I said. But <laughs> somebody will. <laughs> Damon, are you taking notes? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I've got all these burn napkins, just with, I, but I can never read my own handwriting. Um, man, I, 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 unfortunately, we're at the end of, of, of the show. But, Phil, it's... Man, it's always great to run into you and, like, and have a chat with you. And it's even better to have you... Um, take the time to come to the studio today um we're actually recording on friday before tales but this is airing on wednesday during tales i can't wait to see you down there um and dude think like from all of us especially like in the industry and, and people who strive to learn everything but of course, we'll never know it all. Like I said before, that's the best part. But we really appreciate you um, being the director of education for Tales of the Cocktail. Tales of the Cocktail is what in its thirteenth year? We're, we're into our second decade, and as big as it has become, never forget it started out the first year with twelve people sitting around the carousel bar just <laughs> chatting. Right, the second year, literally sitting around the. The second year, it was a walking tour of the French Quarter. It was started out by somebody who had no money and just an idea. And to this day, as big and as bad as it is, Tails gives back more to the community. They just announced, uh, I think, a dozen bartenders who will get $4,500 scholarships for the BAR Five Day. The Spirit Awards are hosted every year. I don't mind saying and admitted uh, in a meeting last year, a public meeting, the Spirit of Awards lose about $130,000, right? And although I try to stop her, Anne doesn't mind that, right? Because it's the industry's party. It's the whole community's thing. So I'm very proud to be associated with it. I'm very proud to be uh, able to help make the education program of the same standard and continuing so that everyone who walks out thinks, wow, 65 bucks was way too cheap. I'm booking my flights for next year. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I'm actually flying down on Sunday um, a, couple of day, a couple of days ago, according to this show. Um, <laughs> and, I'm here, and I'm just here today, Wednesday, uh, to do a talk for Amaro Montenegro. Um, and I'm excited to see people. I'm excited to – I'm staying at the Hotel Monteleon for the first time. I usually stay outside the quarter. Um, but I read this, and I know we're going a little bit long, but I read this, this post that Ann put up, and it resonated with me. I used to live in New Orleans. Tales of the Cocktail is definitely, um, it, it drives a lot of money at a time of year when there's not a lot of money in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a tourist town, and it's definitely on its off season when it's the hottest in the summer, like when we're going down. Um, and she posted a bit about uh, Airbnb and how, you know, if you want to support the city, you should stay in, stay in the hotels that are affiliated with Tales of the Cocktail, or at least stay in a hotel that's in New Orleans. Um, yeah. And I do every year, uh, and I used to live there. I've got couches I could crash on, but I want to I want to give back to the community down there every time I go. So it's a great thing. It's a great thing. I'm excited to be down there this year. Absolutely, man. Um, it's a beautiful city. It's a really good time. Uh, my my advice every year for things like tells the cocktail and like the Manhattan cocktail classic, any any one of these things. I just want to put this out there to everyone. Every time you see water, drink it. Drink, drink it. it. And even though there are going to be a ton of beautiful, beautifully crafted cocktails, don't finish them. Drink all the water and never finish a cocktail. Except Saturday night. Saturday night, go bananas. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
I'd like to throw in one last thing, too, um, that I don't think maybe all the listeners are uh, privy to or aware of. Um, Tales of Cocktail is open to the public. You don't have to be um, in this business in any way. If you're an enthusiast, if you're a listener of the show, if you like all these kind of things, come down, buy some tickets, go to seminars, learn some stuff. It's great. Absolutely. We can't wait to see you down in New Orleans. It's always our favorite week of the year. Absolutely, man. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. And uh, please uh, enjoy responsibly Tales of the Cocktail this year and be looking forward to uh, our 2017 Tales of the Cocktail seminar on uh, bad Hawaiian shirts. Yeah. <laughs> Tiki tacky. Tiki tacky. Yeah, Done. I'm going I'm to invite the Desmonds to be on the panel. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect, actually. Well, okay, so that's it for the speakeasy this week. Um, tune in to Heritage Radio Network for many other programs like this. And please uh, check out all of uh, Phil Duff's seminars and all the other cool stuff that's happening in New Orleans this week. All right. Yeah. It's the future. It's the future, man. All right, cheers, guys. Cheers. cheers. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll, Lord. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, the executive producer of Heritage Radio Network, also the host of Full Service Radio. And I want to talk to you about Brandy. Uh, I was lucky enough to visit Louisville, and we all know Kentucky is whiskey territory. However, the best thing I had to drink was brandy. I got to visit Copper and King's Distillery, and they make pure copper pot distilled American brandy aged in Kentucky bourbon barrels, matured with rock and roll. That's right. Sonic aging. They're playing music to the barrels. The stuff is double distilled, non-chill filtered, unadulterated by bois, sugar, or caramel color. And this stuff is feisty, rambunctious, with a long, smooth finish. This stuff isn't made exactly in the style of an international brandy or a cognac. It's more along the lines of an American whiskey. I can really be honest here and tell you, I'm not just reading you an ad, I'm giving you a tip. American brandy, you're not seeing it everywhere. Copper and Kings is doing it incredibly well, and they're cool people. The distillery is full of incredible art. Like I said, they're playing rock and roll to the barrels. So again, Copper and Kings, pure copper, pot distilled, American brandy, aged in Kentucky bourbon barrels. That's copperandkings.com. Drink it neat, put it in a cocktail, sub it for your brown spirits, experiment, have fun, get funky. This stuff is awesome. 